Hi everyone, I'm Jonathan Siboni, founder and CEO of Luxury Insight, the leading data intelligence platform for luxury brands. Every two weeks, Gottfried Dini, global editor-in-chief, and Olivier Guyot, editor-in-chief friends of Fashion Network, interview the people who shape the industry of luxury, fashion, and beauty. Our guests share their personal journey and opinion on the current state of the market and what to expect for the future. You can find all episodes on luxuryinsight.com, social media, and wherever you want to listen to our podcasts. We hope you're going to enjoy this episode. Good day, everyone. Today, we have the good fortune to meet a highly experienced executive, uh, an expert in consulting, and a former CEO of Christophe, Natalie Remy. Good morning. Um, I'd like to talk to you about your very special career, because we have a lot of uh, young uh, followers to our podcast who want to know about how to get into a career in luxury. Let's begin at the beginning. You're from Brussels, is yes, that right? And you correct. studied at the famous Solvay uh, Business School. Yes, I did. And what did, when did you first get the idea that you wanted a career in luxury and fashion? Oh, it took me quite some time. <laughs> Actually, uh, I started working in Paris. Yeah. So I moved from Brussels to Paris uh, to join the first uh, consulting firm, where actually during four years, I got a training, an amazing training, yeah. working on telecoms, on industry, mm. on airlines, <laughs> on banking, everything but any real consumer business. Ah, okay. Um, after these four years, I went on my MBA at INSEAD with an idea in mind to get out of consulting. I thought my apprenticeship was over and now was time to start to do real stuff um, with an aspiration to join not yet luxury, but let's say a branded, branded product world, right? Where there is a um, design, creativity, value, etc. And actually, I realized um, after my year at INSEAD that it, I could get bored uh, listening to my fellow INSEAD friends. And I went back to consulting. I joined McKinsey & Company, ah. uh, so back in 2000, and I stayed 18 years. Um, and this is where I had my first, I would call it, luxury encounter. Uh, it's always a bit of a mystery to people who aren't consultants, what consultants actually do. I know you, you've you signed NDAs, I'm sure, with all these brands you work with, but you, you, apparently you did work with some couture brands, in fact. What sort of advice, what, what were you needed to do to help these brands? Well, you know, luxury brands are organizations and they need the same kind of help in some life stages as any other organizations, be it to simplify the way they work, to add new capabilities. Mm. Um, and then at some point, I've been working on more brand or product related topics like uh, repositioning a brand. I've been working on more profitability, cost saving initiatives, not for the most premium ones, but in affordable luxury, the margins and the, the business model is not exactly the same. So sometimes you need to look at the bottom line as much as you do look at the top line. Um, I've been working also quite a lot on execution excellence, because this is 
key in luxury, right? So retail excellence. How do you make sure that across hundreds of stores in the world, you have frontline salespeople who are really working in a way to delight the customer every day, right? So that's the kind of programs we can do to help brands. How, how do you do that? That's the huge question nowadays, I think. Yeah. How we do it? Well, we, I mean, in consulting, there is a process, right? Um, consulting is very well known for the, I would say, upper part of the work, which is gathering data, uh, running analysis, building recommendations, helping executives to make decisions when there are some options on the table, yeah. right? What is maybe less well known is that a real advisor goes further, right, and goes to to accompany individuals, their clients, and then corporations in implementing change. And in today's world, which is more complex, um, which is more volatile, with a changing workforce, with many challenges to face, change has become part of the usual. And changing organization is one of the most difficult tasks for a leader. I see increasingly, even after uh, a long period of growth in the internet and in e-tailing, that a key obsession of CEOs in luxury who run big runway brands and have uh, chains of important, expensive retail operations, the obsession with the interface between the client, that very first reaction. How does one go about improving that, that the the sales staff, the managers of these boutiques correspond and interact better with the customer. Yeah, so I, I would give two views on that. The first one is today's luxury consumers are truly omnichannel. So um, it's true that historically the luxury industry has resisted quite strongly to e-commerce, for instance. And some brands even today are only showcasing a very small portion of their offering online. Yeah. Um, but we've seen a massive acceleration, I would say, since 10 years. Mm. And with COVID, um, more recently, uh, numbers have really skyrocketed. Mm. Um, but we need to keep this in mind because today, it's not about a sales funnel. It's about consumer journeys. Mm. And a relationship between a luxury shopper and a luxury brand mm. is a lifelong relationship. Mm -hmm that goes through lots of different touch points, including the store, including the website, including the world of mouth that the brand does not really control. The world of? The world of mouth. So what yeah, people say mouth, yes. about yeah. your brand, including just traditional media exposure. So all of mm. that actually contributes to building this relationship mm. between the shoppers and the brand. When we talk about customer experience, and delighting the customer every day. It's not only in store. It's also in the interaction between the store, the call center, the website, the delivery of a product at home, mm. all these interactions. The way we as advisors help organizations to move the needle, right, to improve mm. um, is uh, by putting in place an internal discipline so it starts from making sure everybody is aligned mm. and on the need for some customer centricity. You need to 
your mission is to delight the customer from the CEO down to even the backroom employee in the store, right? Mm -hmm. So that should be a common alignment, common yeah. objective. Yeah. Then you need to measure because what, what isn't measured doesn't improve. So there are many different measures of customer experience. We have our own at Bain, which is called NPS, Net Promoter Score. Uh -huh. um, so you need to measure how successful you are at improving on that dimension. And then you need to put in place some, I would call it rituals in the company at all levels. And this is the change management to make sure that all the teams across functions, across geographies and across hierarchy are actually working together to improve the customer experience. I'm curious about this NPS, Net Promoter Score. What does it measure? It measures, actually, it's a net score. So you ask people how much they would recommend your brand. So it's not a satisfaction measure. Yeah. It's not a pure engagement measure. It goes further. It's would you be able to put yourself in mm. front to say, I recommend. So it's stronger. And it's a net score because we take actually the true promoters minus the detractors and gives gives you a score. Um, the key element in that is data then, that you're collecting from multiple individuals. Yes, but data is both quantitative data, like a score, a metric, mm -hmm. but also qualitative data. So you should ask your customer and get insights that can be feedback, that could also be ideas for the future. One thing that's been striking about luxury is um, there's been this remarkable growth in e-tailers. And, mm. you know, we can think of half a dozen, My Theresa, Net-a-Porter, Yux, uh, to Zalando, Farfetch'd. Uh, and yet, uh, curiously, the business model ends up being not that much different than old department stores in terms of the narrow margins in the business and the cost of continually opening up the website. Do you think that's going to remain the case in the future? So if the question is, are you going to continue to have e-tailers, multi-brand e-tailers? I would believe yes. If the question is, is, is it a very profitable business model to buy and sell? The answer is it's much less profitable than when you have a full margin integration. So it's end up being quite similar to department stores in terms of its revenue and margins. Yes, um, except that in luxury department stores, um, capex are very high because of the locations, mm. because of the regular refurbishments, mm. and you have a physical constraint, which is space. But the capex surely on e-tailers is also quite hard. You've got to permanently spend money on technicians. Up on there. technology, yes, yeah. but relatively, yeah. probably less. Yeah. Do you think the department store will survive into the future? Or will it go the way of the glossy magazine? I don't have a crystal ball, right? <laughs> yes, <but laughs> um, it's true that department stores around the world have been struggling. Yeah. Um, because 20 years ago, the department store was a multi-brand one-stop shop yeah. where you could find in one location the largest offering mm. across brands. Mm. Today, the best department store of the world is called iPhone. <laughs> 
So the breadth of offering is not anymore differentiating. What we've seen in the last decade is the winning department stores, because not everybody is struggling the same way, uh, are those who are able to define a differentiating value proposition, adding value-added services like personal shopper who give you advice, having maybe a um, a more curated offering. So it's not about the breadth, it's about the relevance for a specific target group. So you need to find a way to to build the loyalty to the department store as a brand and not as a house of brands. Okay, so you do think it'll probably survive? Yes, maybe not all. Okay. Um, at a certain point in your career after you learned all this, expertise over more than two decades, you became CEO to Christophe. Why did you make that move? Well, I made that move because I had the opportunity. Because I knew I wanted to do the second half of my career in luxury. Um, and because after more than 20 years in consulting, I wanted to see what's on the other side. And to basically uh, experience whether I love it or hate it. <laughs> but basically it was the point in time, mid-career, where either I jumped or I stayed in consulting forever. What sort of changes did you bring about? At Christophe? Hmm. Wow. How long do you have? <laughs> <laughs> um, so Christophe is, is an amazing um, French luxury silverware brand. It's privately owned. Um, it, it had a huge success last century. Yeah. Um, it was one of the first globalized French luxury brand. First one to go to the US, for instance. Because at the beginning, now Charles Christophe was an innovator and an explorator. Uh, my mission um, as a CEO was to get the company back on the growth path, to simplify, to, to increase the desirability of the brand while modernizing it slightly. So it's both on branding and on product and services offering, uh, simplifying the distribution, making a real shift to online um, reinvesting massively in the craftsmanship. So there is a manufacturer in Normandy, mm. um, which um, we actually put back at the core of what we do. Mm. Um, and just basically, to summarize, I would say modernization, desirability, and simplification. The, the company is owned by the Shalhoub family, who are one of the most important uh, yes. distributors of luxury, um, in uh, primarily French, in the Gulf. That's where they yeah. made it. Um, what was their brief to you when you when you came in? Solve the problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And you felt you did? Yes. I mean, we, we obviously, we had to, to cope with COVID. Yeah. Right? So you can do the most beautiful plants on earth. Yeah you have to deal with whatever is coming, right? So um, we we made huge progress. The organization is much stronger. The brand DNA is much clearer. The product offering also is simplified. The factory has made tremendous progress and the economics have improved dramatically. They have this very elegant store on Rue Royale. Yes. Were you part of the renovation of that in... Uh... No, 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 no. no. 
that had taken place. Yeah. Um, since then, you've gone to back to work, is that correct, with Bain and Company, and you're a partner there? Yes, that's correct. I joined Bain in Paris this January, so five months ago. Are you specifically targeting luxury and lifestyle? Ah, uh, yes, I'm on an entrepreneurial mission, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm really focused on building a, a very strong team there. Okay, very. Do you? How do you see the world of luxury changing over the next five ten years? Lots of things will continue to change. Some we can anticipate. Some we will just discover along the way. Um, Luxury is um, a healthy, growing sector with some uh, dynamics in place where I'm not going to say you have a winner's take all, but you really have a size advantage, right? So when you look at performance of the brands, the smallest ones are struggling more than the bigger ones, right? You have a a scale effect. I think what's changing in luxury is... um, that they need to adapt to the fact that the consumers are changing um, and probably continue their slow migration from being a purely creativity and product-driven company to being creativity, product, and customer-driven company. Um, I think that data and artificial intelligence uh, are going to change dramatically in luxury and beyond the way we work. And so we'll probably raise lots of questions and trigger lots of adaptations throughout organizations. You you don't see AI in any way as a threat? No, it's, it's an opportunity. I mean, if you want to leverage it, you'd better look at it as an opportunity. Um, it could become a threat if you don't seize the opportunity because things are moving so fast, especially since the end of last year, mm. um, that it could create a performance gap between brands. That a- Why? For different reasons. Some are just uh, internally focused in companies. It helps improve the work of thousands, millions of people. So they can spend less time on low value at the task and more time on high value at the task. Either you do it or you don't do it, but for sure it will have an implication on the value you create for a certain level of cost. Do you think it will destroy some professions or radically reduce the number of people in them? No, I think it will reshape the content of the jobs, but not necessarily kill jobs. I mean, there have been lots of articles on, you know, uh, you've read them too, right? Uh, one third of the white collars are go- jobs are going to disappear. But basically, it's enhancing the job for many people. It's creating new skills and capabilities needs in organizations, right? Luxury is a strong ta- magnet for talent mm. in branding, in design, mm. In distribution, yeah. it's maybe not the number one company for engineers or data scientists <laughs> and tomorrow prompt engineers, right? Yeah, so yeah. Um, these skill sets and capabilities, luxury companies will also have to develop them. And so this is new job creation. The um, I was with a, a friend of mine, a lawyer in uh, Los Angeles recently at the Chanel show, and he, he had been my lawyer 20 years ago when he lived in, in Paris. And he 
typed into his iPhone a request for a contract to a uh, three-year contract to uh, for a job, and it's it, it sort of printed. It came up on the screen within uh, fifteen seconds. Yes, in matter of seconds. And he regarded that as an immense threat that it would destroy many people's profession in the legal area. Well, I'm an optimist by nature, (laughs) right? So it will reduce some workload. Uh. The question is, what are the other value-added tasks you can Uh. ask your people to do? Um, To me, the challenge is more to redesign career paths um, because a lot of the early career jobs are not maybe the most interesting ones, but you have to go through it to learn, right? You you mentioned uh, le- law, legal. Mm. Um, in your first few years, mm. you spent hours in the library to do research on past cases. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow you ask ChatGPT, you get, you know, uh, mm. better quality in less time. Okay. Okay? Okay. So to me, the challenge is, is not, oh, we are not going to have young lawyers anymore because you will have young lawyers. The question is, how are we going to train this new generation of lawyers in a different way than what we used to do before? Okay. Um, When we played around with our iPhone, it seemed difficult just to tap images in and then get something back. So maybe it's threat to uh, creative people, visual artists, is less significant. So the impact of AI and especially generative AI, right? Yeah, so yeah. Uh, with a creative, uh, uh, yeah. new content generation yeah, yeah. Uh, ability yeah. uh, in creative jobs. Yeah. Um, here again, I, I'm strongly convinced it can enhance um, and simplify the way we work. It's never. I don't believe you can have a computer artistic director. I have a hard time imagining that, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. Now, when you look at the way the brands work on, I mean, taking the big idea into um, product lines and then into specific product design and then into product specifications, etc., there are many steps in that value chain that can be either enabled, enriched, enhanced, by the use of generative AI. Now, what it also means is that for some brands who may, which maybe don't have an artistic director, you can get mood boards generated through Dali, Mm. right? Just by watching trends on social media and you ask three ideas for mood boards for the next season. I'm sure, but my experience of being a fashion critic and going to thousands of shows is that any time a brand transitions from one designer to another and takes six months or a year and leaves the studio to do it, it's always pretty pathetic that it's rarely a success. Which is why, you know, my conviction is it's never going to replace this um, sparkle. Now, once you have the sparkle, the more um, uh, stretching the idea into how we could implement the idea, this is where... It can probably add value. One thing um, uh, CEOs of uh, luxury companies always talk about is managing talent, mm-hmm. harnessing their skills, 
focusing it, realizing what their strengths. As a consultant, what sort of advice do you give to uh, CEOs when they talk about that issue? Well, when it comes to talent, um, it's true that a lot of luxury brands and especially the most successful ones are really talent-driven companies. Um, I would say uh, take diversity and inclusion into account when thinking about talent. Think about selecting talent rather than attracting talent. Um, And once you have talents, invest in your people, right? Um, Because there is, um, uh, when you're fresh out of school, you have a lot of passion, ambition, motivation, but you cannot do anything, right? And you're learning. And in luxury, just like in consulting, it's a lot about apprenticeship. And so the managers, not only HR and training organizations, but the managers in luxury have a key role to play. And when you look at the most successful, I'm not going to name them, but the most successful brands, you have emblematic, charismatic leaders who have been there for a quite long period and who have embarked generations of talent behind them. Uh, When you say invest in talent, what do you mean? Spend time with them, give them feedback, give them opportunities, mobility, geographic mobility, functional mobility, develop them. Um, How do you see, um, do you expect the luxury industry to to be the the boom industry it has been for the next 30 years over the next 10 or 20? The the luxury industry has been a a well-managed company has been growing double digit for about 30 years. Do you expect that to continue? Why would it stop? <laughs> I mean, the, the long-term growth rate of luxury over the last 20, 25 years yeah. is 6 to 8%. 6 to 8%. 6 to 8%. With some downturns. Yeah. Mm, we've been there. Uh, and some very fast mm. uptick, yeah. right? The V-shape in yeah. every crisis. But always back on this kind of long-term trend. Yeah. The drivers behind the growth of the industry um, is two sides. Luxury is a supply industry, not a demand. You don't need it, right? When you look at the Maslow pyramid, luxury is not at the bottom, right? So it's a supply industry. You create desire and so people spend money. And there is a lot of dynamism on the supply side. You have a lot of insurgent brands. The incumbent brands are stretching themselves across categories. They are more creative than ever. They are increasing prices like never before. You know, So there is a lot of dynamics on the supply side. Yeah, yeah. Now, on what I would call the demand side, the consumers. Yeah. Um, actually, when you look at the mega trends in terms of wealth around the planet, there is probably a reservoir <laughs> of luxury spending for the next decades, 30, 50, 100 years, because you have more and more buyers who can afford luxury products, right? At Bain, we we made an estimate recently that, you know, in the next seven to 10 years, probably you will have 100 million more luxury buyers. So it's 25% increase. You would go from 400 million people on the planet to 500 million buying at least once a year a piece of luxury. So you recruit because you have the emerging 
upper middle class yeah, yeah. all around the planet. And then at the other extreme of the spectrum, you have the ultra high net worth mm. and high net worth mm -hmm. who are increasing in number and in wealth and spending more and more. So actually the entire pyramid, I would say, of luxury shopper is growing. So you're very optimistic about the future, clearly. I'm very optimistic. A big word people talk about all the time, uh, uh, especially when they're talking to editors, is community. And I sometimes wonder is it's just a buzzword that people use to cloak what they're doing. But do you think it's a meaningful term, really? Community? Yeah. Community, not sure. Communities? Yeah. Yes. We all live in communities, in our work, in our private life. Yes. And... Because in luxury, you create this kind of special link with your customers where there is some emotional engagement. Because we talk about love, right? We talk about desire, not just about a good quality product and good value for money, right? Um, it's engaging. And as you have group of like-minded people who share some passion together, it could be a passion for a brand, you have communities that are basically self-animating themselves. So yes, communities exist. The question is, what can a brand do to communicate, engage, leverage these communities? Um, when we look at a, a giant corporation like LVMH, there are star brands that have had remarkable runs of success. Dior, Vuitton, that grow in double-digit figures, or even younger ones. But that isn't true for all of them. Uh, you touched on something earlier that the smaller brands have had a difficulty. Uh, I'm not trying to ask you to criticize Bernard Arnault, but why is it that smaller runway brands in luxury with a long history don't necessarily could grow as rapidly as the bigger ones? So I don't think it's an LVMH or not LVMH yes, story. Yes, quite, yeah. <laughs> um, I think um, a luxury brand is going through life stages just like we are going through life stages, <laughs> right? So you have a baby brand, basically a designer starting some business, mm. you know, a few tens of millions mm. starting. It's not really an organization. It's a startup. Then you go to the next level, which is childhood, mm -hmm. and you grow nicely yeah. because you found a recipe. You have a great signature, you have great design, you, ha you have something. Then comes teenage. Teenage typically starts around 100 million. And teenage goes to 500 to 1 billion. And I'm sure you've had teenagers just like I did. Um, it's a period in life where things are difficult yeah. because it's not linear. Very often your complexity grows faster than your sales. You need to structure yourself as a global organization. You need to recruit different kinds of talents. Mm. It takes a bit of time to put mm. things in place to be ready for the next stage. And once you pass the bar... Most of these brands in the maturity life mm -hmm. stage, they strive, but you need to get there. And out of 100 brands that are at 100 million, not all of them will get to the billion. How many will get to the billion? Actually, few. 10 or 20%. Yeah. 
and the others will just float around that area. Yeah. And why is that? Lack of management, lack of skill, lack of creativity, lack of commitment, lack of capital. I think there there is not a, an easy answer. Yeah. I would say a bit of all. I've seen cases where you had something beautiful, not the right shareholder, not enough money to invest. I've seen brands that have actually uh, fallen asleep in terms of the creativity. And so basically there was nothing more to create the desire. I've seen brands um, seeing themselves too big, too early, going into less qualitative distribution, you know, just going for short-term growth rather than long-term brand building. Probably you would learn more from looking at what are the common traits among those who succeeded because there are many failure stories that have different root causes. Mm -hmm. When you look at the common traits, Mm -hmm. yes, you have a vision, a creative vision. Mm -hmm. You have amazing products. You have super qualitative distribution. Mm -hmm. You have big money. But with size, big money comes too, right? So that's one of the challenge to Mm -hmm. move up the the scale. you have the best talent. So when you have it all, it becomes easier. Finally, let's go back to the beginning. Um, We talked about your career. What are the three bits of advice you would give someone um, uh, going into college or leaving university who would like a job in luxury and lifestyle and fashion? I think... My my first advice would be look for opportunities. If you do not open your eyes, you might not see them. Um, The second one is cultivate your passion. So if you are passionate about this industry, even if your first job is not in luxury, it's not a big deal. You're going to learn something that will make you more valuable after that experience. But at the same time, continue to cultivate your passion. Stay tuned, right? That would be my second one. And the third one is um, try to find a few inspirational mentors as early as you can. And don't hesitate to ask because people will not necessarily propose to mentor you, right? So (laughs) sometimes it's in your camp to be in the driver's seat and ask for mentorship. But it helps because it creates new opportunities. It helps you grow and it helps you cultivate this relationship with the industry, even though at some point you might end up doing different things. You might go in private equity, you might go in consulting. So stay connected. Natalie Remy, it's been a pleasure. Shared pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Luxury Insight and Fashion Network podcast. If you like this episode, subscribe to our channel to discover more exclusive insights from leaders of the industry. You can find all our episodes on LuxuryInsight.com, social media, and wherever you listen to your podcasts.